All right, last week we began a very uh, simple series entitled Faith Works, where we began to explore specifically how we can put our faith into practice, how we can take our faith and, and work it out. And one of the questions I think that people have is, well, if it comes to me applying my faith, can we really do that? Is it possible to live out what you really believe? Because if we can't, and I'm not sure that I really can live out my faith, why even try? There's an old country song by Ernest Tubb entitled, uh, Baby, It's So Hard to Be Good. And uh, the lyrics go like this. All the Ernest look really great, don't they? Uh, I make a promise to my baby, uh, a promise a day to my baby, break the promise a day somehow. She says I'm going to drive her crazy, but I'm too over-changing now. And later on he sings, Now my heart's full of good intentions. I try hard to walk the line, but memories too sweet to mention keep sneaking back into my mind. And the whole song hammers home this sentiment. I'm going to try hard to be good, but you know that's not happening. And there are probably some Christians that are in this camp, Ernest, I believe. I'm really, you know, really, I, I believe, I believe in Jesus, I believe in God the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, all the stuff. I, you, I, I believe the Apostles' Creed. I got saved, I got baptized, all the rest. But here's the thing. I've never really been able to live out my belief. It's not that I don't want to. That's just not how I roll. I, I, I just, it just doesn't work for me. I try to, to be good, but it, it just doesn't happen. I've never been able to, never will be able to. That's just where I'm coming from, and that's just that. And if that's where you are, if that's how you've been, if that's where you're coming from, then this message is essentially for you. And I do want to say right off the bat, no matter who you are, if you are a believer, you do have what or rather whom you need, but it is about having him. It's not, this is not about gritting our teeth and trying harder the next time around as if it's up to us. That's not the case at all. Now, we have been focusing on living out our faith, but it is our faith that we are called to live out. Unfortunately, here's what happens. Around Christian institutions like the church, when people start talking about living out their faith very quickly, they'll jump over to, how am I living things out? How am I doing with this in comparison to how other people are doing with this? And all of a sudden, it's not about working out your faith anymore. It's about working out your flesh. And if at any point you start thinking about how am I working things out and how am I working things out better than how these other people are working things out. You're not working out your faith. You're working out your flesh, and that's not good because isn't it true that while people who do what is wrong are irritating, people who do what is right with a smug, self-righteous attitude, they're every bit as irritating. We don't like them either. You don't want to be that person. I don't want to be that person. Nobody wants to be that person. So as Christians, bottom line, as Christians who want to make the most of life, who want to make a difference, and who want to be good, we've got to do a couple of things. We must always keep two things in view. One is our faith, and the other thing that we have to keep in view is ourselves. And James talks about this. Because when you keep your faith in view, clearly in view, and when you keep the reality of who you are, apart from Christ, clearly in view, here's what happens. You see that every good thing that comes to you and through you 
is ultimately from God and you can't take any credit for that because if you ever do bring glory to God, if you ever do bring healing and salvation to other people, to the world, you know it's always only God who's doing it through you. But at that moment, when you start making your good works about you, when you become the preoccupation of you and the center of all of your actions, in that moment you stop and you frustrate what it is that God wants to do. And here's what God wants to do, James tells us. He wants to bless you and bless other people through you. That's much of what's going on in James's mind in the verses that we're going to look at this morning. So let's go ahead and stand out of respect for God who's speaking to us through his word. This is James chapter 1 verses 16 through 25. And believe it or not, it's such a wonderful passage, and I've never preached this passage before in my whole life because I thought, oh, this is so obvious. Why go there? But there are some things here that are so wonderful and gripping, and, and I hope they grip your heart like they have mine. James says this, Don't be deceived, my dear brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. My dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. For man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he's heard but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. May God bless the reading of his word and may be seated. Now this morning I'm going to be, uh, I think, very straightforward and practical about being good, how to be good. And when we talk about being good, I don't mean milk toasty, okay? When we, we, when we talk about being good, we mean talking, we're, we're talking about being like Jesus. We're talking about robust goodness. Nobody wants to turn men into mice or women into wet rags. When we talk about being good, we're talking about living the kind of life that you want to live and that other people around you want to live and that ultimately God most wants you to live. So the question is, how do I do this? How can I be good? And I'm, I'm going to mention several things, and the first one is of the primary importance. If you want to be good, number one, you must be born again. Jesus says this, you must be born again. Uh, James puts it in a similar manner in verse 18. He says, he chose us to give us birth. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. Now, not long ago, I was at a coffee shop, and seated next to me was a young man and a couple of young ladies, and they were having this conversation. I couldn't help but overhear because it was rather loud. And uh, the guy was explaining how he and his boyfriend were a particular kind of Christian. They were, they, they, they were special Christians because they were modern, liberal Christians. His words, not mine. I would have described him as postmodern, but that's another debate. But he said, I'm a modern, liberal Christian. And, and it kind of bothered me later on, I was thinking about it. What bothered me most was not that he felt at liberty to determine his own boundaries for his life as if you can be the master of your own life when you're a Christian. What bothered me was not that he described himself as modern or liberal, okay, whatever. It was the undertone of the entire conversation, and that is, there are different kinds of Christians. 
there are these kinds of Christians and these kinds of Christians and these kinds of Christians. And what the Bible teaches is there's only one kind. You must be born again. When the Bible says, when Jesus says, you must be born again, I think he means it. You must be born again. To be a born-again Christian is a redundancy. If you're a Christian, you're born again. If you're born again, you're a Christian. If you're not born again, you're not a Christian. If you're not a Christian, you're not born again. They absolutely go together. Jesus, in John chapter 3, tells Nicodemus, you must be born again in order to see the kingdom of heaven. It has to happen. This isn't something that some people experience because you know how some people are sort of emotional and they need this conversion moment or something. No, if you're not born again, you're not in. If you're not born again, you don't receive the kingdom of heaven. You must be born again. Now, some of you are are thinking, I thought you were going to get practical. You're going to talk about how to be good. And now you're talking about soteriology, theology of salvation and conversion. And why does this matter to being good? Here's why you must be born again. A born-againless Christianity is not only no Christianity at all, it leaves you alone in terms of your resources. If you're going to be good, it has to be God in your life doing it because here's how Jesus put it. He asked one time, why do you call me good? Somebody called him good. Why do you call me good? No one but God is good. If any good and perfect thing is going to happen, it is always only going to be God doing it through you. So if you just say, hey, I don't think that I can be good, you're right. But the good news is God did not intend for you to be alone. He wants to give you himself a new life, not just a boost in your life, but a new life, his life. Here's how it's put in Second Peter. I love this. It's so straightforward. His divine nature has given us everything required for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. By these he has given us a very great and, and precious promises so that through them you may share in the divine nature, escaping the corruption that is in the world because of evil desires. We have been made partakers of the divine nature. Now this is very important because you recognize if there's going to be something good and perfect, it's going to be God doing it through you and you can depend on God. But when you depend on God, it has to be moment by moment as if you were praying, not necessarily in these words, but as if you're praying, God, I can't do this, but you can. I can't deal with this, but you can. Apart from the dependence upon God who is present in your life through the accomplished work of Jesus Christ, you don't have the resources necessary so as to be good. So this is the starting point. You must be born again. You must receive God into your life by placing your faith in Jesus Christ, who is the atoning sacrifice, the bridge whereby God's very presence and nature comes flooding into your life. There is no hope for your goodness apart from this. Just the truth. You say, well, I know some people who are, who are good. Yeah, they may be doing some good things, and you may be able to do some good things in your own flesh. But when there's too much of you involved, pride sneaks in. And like we've already established, nobody likes it when people do things and they're smug and self-righteous about this. That's not good. That's annoying. Okay? So number one, you must be born again. Number two, following that, you've got to humble yourself before God. And this, of course, makes perfect sense if you have to depend on God and God has come into your life. You need to depend on Him so you remain humble because the moment you become prideful, you cut off what it is that God wants to do in and through your life, which is to bless you and to bless other people. And this humility before God is emphasized in so many ways here. And one of the ways that's underappreciated is this statement that we have to be born. You've got to be born spiritually. I don't know if any of you have ever been 
witnesses to the birth of a human being, but I've seen a human being born into this world. Now, ladies, most of you, you haven't seen it. You were just there. But uh, but we guys, we, we got to see it. And uh, in the first service, Kim wanted to let me have it. And so, uh, you know, the, you don't have to let me have, to have it afterwards. She already did, did that for me. Uh, but I have seen one person come into the world, and that was my son. I saw when he was born. I didn't see Shelby because that was C-section, and I, I wasn't watching that. But anyways, Nathan comes into the world, and you know what I did not do? I did not immediately turn around to Nathan and say, Hey, put your cap on, put your pants on, let's go home. I mean, he's a baby. He's an infant. He can't do anything. He's got to be totally carried. And, and so what is being communicated here is this. When you're born spiritually, you're a baby. You're an infant. I don't care. I don't care what your education is. I don't care if you have the Bear grills ability to provide for yourself and care for yourself. I don't care what your education is, your profession, what's your reputation. When you are born, you basically say, help me. What do I do next? When you're a Christian, you essentially kind of start at the bottom. There's humility, humility, humility that is involved in being born. Radical dependence. And so it naturally does follow what James says next. After verse 18 comes verse 19. Didn't know that. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. For man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Now, of course, verse 19, you could preach it on its own. It, it could stand alone. It could be Proverbs 1:19. You know, everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. And, and isn't that true? That just reads like a proverb. How many of you have ever come away from a conversation going, you know, I wish I had snapped faster. I wish I had spoken more quickly and listened less. That doesn't happen. Pretty frequently you come away from a conversation and say, well, I kind of prejudged and I shouldn't have said that and I should have listened more. That's just true. We ought to listen better, speak less. We know that. But this is not Proverbs 119, this is James 119. And so within the context, here's what we're talking about specifically. What we're talking about is the word of God that we hear and receive and apply and put into practice. We're talking about basically keeping our mouths shut and our ears open specifically before God. Now, this does apply with regards to other people because how you respond to other people carries over into how you respond to God. They go together. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. They go together. How we relate horizontally flows with regards to how we relate vertically. And this is kind of interesting. Jesus was actually a rather slow-to-speak kind of person. We typically think of Jesus as the answer man, like he's always saying stuff. But Jesus, like a good listener, does what listeners do. He asks lots of questions. Have you ever noticed that? Who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? What do you want? Why did you not believe? Why do you call me good? Jesus, when he's with his parents as a child, he's asking, did you not know that I would be in my father's house? You go through the New Testament, you know how many times Jesus is asking questions? How many questions does Jesus ask in the New Testament? Turn to the neighbor next to you and tell him. Maybe, maybe so you can show off later. 307, 307 times Jesus asks questions. Sometimes he doesn't answer them. 
Sometimes he asks the question, he just lets it sit. Sometimes the parables are more of a question because he doesn't even interpret the parables. And sometimes he just gives the parables so as to raise questions. Jesus is the questions guy. He's a listener. Now listen, if Jesus is that way toward you and toward me, then how much more should we be that way toward our Lord? Now, some of you are saying, okay, that makes sense. I get it. Being quick to listen and slow to speak go together. But how does that fit together with slow to become anger, angry? Here's how. Let's go back to the verse because it's really important that you get this because if you don't get this, it's going to inhibit your ability to be the person that you know you need to be. Verse 19, my dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. For man's anger does not bring about the righteous life God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Now, here's what I want you to notice here. There's a contrast between being angry and something else. And the antithesis to being angry is not self-control. If you have an anger problem, you, your fundamental problem is not self-control. That's a superficial analysis. Here in this passage, being angry is contrasted on the one hand with being the kind of person who's always speaking, never listening, telling people what to do, but not listening to what people do. And on the other hand, it's being contrasted with humility because humility and being the kind of person who listens rather than speaks are one and the same thing. In other words, if you are an angry person, you are a prideful person. And until you address your pride you are not going to grow spiritually because growth spiritually comes when you humbly accept the word that is planted in you. So if you're going to recognize that that you have to be born again because it's the word of God, the living word of God at work in and through you, and that you must humbly depend upon that word that has been planted in you because it's all about God, it's not about you, you need to obviously repent of your pride and that knowledge should cause you to repent of your pride because if you don't repent of your pride, here's what's going to happen. You're cutting off and frustrating what God wants to do, which is to bless. This brings us to the next thing with regards to humbly receiving the word. You've got to, you've got to stay in the word. You've got to remain in the word of God. You, you see in verse 17, it talks about the, the word of truth is, is how you were uh, born again. And then in verse 21, it talks about humbly receiving uh, this word that can save your soul, can save you. Now, this is really uh, very interesting to me because there's a word that's used in the Greek here for planted that is the only time that this word is used. There's other times where it talks about planting in the Bible. In the whole Greek New Testament, this word occurs one time. And what this word plant means is natural as opposed to acquired. What's being communicated is this. Okay, what's the word of truth? It's, it's God's will. It's God's revealed will. It's God's heart. It's God's mind. Here's what's being re- revealed in this passage. At the moment you were born from above by the word of truth that is planted in you, that word of truth becomes natural to you, and it resonates with what is planted essentially in the Scriptures. When you become a believer, it's like God has placed in you from the moment of your birth a new nature, and this new nature... Re- resonates with what has been planted in the Holy Scriptures because when you become a believer, the Holy Spirit indwells your life and the Holy Spirit is the one who gave us the Scriptures. This is why commonly when people have become Christians, if they were around churches, they read the Bible, oh, that's interesting, I'm learning something, I'm acquiring knowledge. But when they become a believer and they get born from above, all of a sudden the Scripture comes to life 
because deep calls to deep. Spirit recognizes spirit. There's something in you that resonates with what has been planted in the Scripture, and that is the Word of God. But when you're in the Word, it is somehow bringing to the surface the the knowledge of God that has been given to you because you've been given a new nature. I know that was very thick, but if you are going to grow and there's going to be the outworking of what has been planted into you, you need to be in the Word as the humble person who is listening to God because through the Bible, God is speaking to you and that's what causes the seed to take root and grow and bear fruit. So do you see how all of these things kind of swirl around together? Born from above, and since I have been born from above because I need God in my life in order to be good, I need to humble myself before God because it's not about me, it's about God, but I also need to remain in the Word because it's by the Word of truth that I was reborn, it's by the Word of truth that I grow, and so I need to humble myself. All of these things are swirling around together, and if you go back to to James and read this later, you read uh, verses 16 through 25, you'll see all of these concepts used almost interchangeably because you can't imagine one being true without the other simultaneously. So that's why James can't just immediately skip to, hey, you know what God wants you to do, be good. Because there is a spiritual transformation that has to take place continually in your life and in mine so that we can be the people that God wants us to be and that you want you to be and that everybody around you wants to be. So being good doesn't just start with knowing the list and getting after it. Being good starts with abiding in Christ. It's very simple. Now, before we press forward, let me just kind of drive something home to you because I think this is, this is worth driving home. God in humility, because we're talking about humbling ourselves before God, God in humility is present in our life and dwelling in our lives, and he's speaking to us And he is doing this through the scripture. This is scientifically, verifiably God revealing himself. And some of you are saying, that's just kind of a mouthful. I'm not so sure about that. Let me share something with you that you probably missed. We didn't advertise it. They're affiliated with us. It's not through Main Street. But there's something called Reasons to Believe. Uh, Reasons to Believe is this organization. They've got an Austin chapter. And about once a month, there's somebody that speaks for Reasons to Believe. Our own John Murphy is the president of Reasons to Believe. And last Saturday, a week ago Saturday, eight days ago, Dr. Sarah Salviander came and spoke in this sanctuary. There are a few people, and it was recorded. If you want to hear her talk, just go to YouTube and, and search Reasons to Believe Austin Chapter. She was an atheist, grew up as an atheist, raised atheist, Ph.D., professor of astrophysics, and she specializes in the study of quasars and black holes. You know, obvious kind of stuff, right? And so she's an atheist, but she, as an atheist, she starts getting kind of interested, curious in the Bible, and she discovers or identifies what she considered to be 27 testable statements, scientifically testable statements from Genesis chapter 21, and all 27 of them are true. She takes these 27 truths from Genesis 1 and, and one by one, they're all true. Not only that, but these 27 truths from Genesis chapter 21 are in the correct chronological order. Nobody who is a contemporary scientist or cosmologist would disagree with 
any of the order or the truths that emerge from Genesis chapter 1. Let me take you through this real quick because this, this to me is just absolutely fascinating. And see, here's what you're going to be missing whenever you don't tune in to reasons to believe. Number one, okay, chrono- chronology of Genesis. I'll just shoot through this real quickly. The universe has a beginning. The universe was created. The earth did not initially exist. The universe was initially empty of matter. The universe was initially very dark. And let me just kind of reiterate, these are scientific statements that every cosmologist and astrophysicist would agree with as scientifically valid statements. Number six, brief, rapid expansion of the universe. Number seven, light becomes the dominant substance of the universe for a while. And this is especially fascinating because if you go back to the day of Moses or the day of Jesus or even early theologians like Augustine, there is no way in the world they could have conceived how this could be possible that there was light and then the separation of light from darkness before the sun was created, before the earth existed. How is that even possible? They could not have conceived of it. That is now scientific fact as far as astrophysicists are concerned. Number eight, dark substances and their interplay with normal matter because the text talks about separating dark from light even before there's a separation of day and, and night. Verse nine, or, or verse nine, statement nine, the, the, the gospel according to Salviander. Uh, number nine, the first form of matter existing in a fluid state, the disk of the Milky Way galaxy begins to form. The earth forms and continents appear. Oceans and other bodies of water form. Plant life begins to appear on the earth. Seed-bearing plants eventually appear. The atmosphere becomes transparent. The sun and the moon become visible from the surface of the earth. Animal life appears first in the oceans. Flying creatures appear. Giant aquatic reptiles appear in the oceans. Other forms of aquatic animals appear. Other winged animals appear. Explosions of millions of species of aquatic and winged animals. Appearance of mammals. Appearance of hominids. Spiritual uniqueness of humans. Humans dominating the earth. Animals are grouped according to shared characteristics. Various passages. So she identifies these 27 truth statements that emerge from Genesis. And she says they're all true. Which is just like, what, how, what are the possibilities of that happening by accident? I don't know. It's just impossible to calculate. But then she does calculate what she could possibly calculate. It's not just that the, there are these 27 truths that, again, scientists, cosmologists, astrophysicists affirm to be true. It's that they're in the correct chronological order. She says, what are the odds of that? And she does the math, and it's basically 27 factorial. I'll, I'll, I'll spare you all the details of how that gets figured. But the chances of those 27 things being randomly ordered is one out of basically a little more than 10 octillion. That's the number. That's crazy, okay? You have a better chance of winning the Texas lottery three times in a row than that number. Now, somebody's going to win the Texas lottery. If it's you, it's not a sin if, if you tie 20%. Anyways, uh, it, it, okay, that, that was extra cathedra, man. That wasn't really in the Bible or anything. Um, it could be you if you play. I think that's a terrible investment, one out of 26 million chance. Just throw your money away. Go ahead. But if you win, what do you think the chances are that you're going to win a second time? If you win two times in a row, the second time... You're going to prison because nobody does that. You must have had some inside track. And you're not going to win it the third time in a row because they don't let prisoners play the lotto while behind bars, I don't think. And so that, those are the odds. It's just crazy. She put it like this, and, and I'm, I'm kind of modifying a little bit. But just imagine you've got those 27 statements, and then they all get shuffled up, and then to put them back in order randomly. Just, just think of it like this. I've got some cards up here. It's hard to get. Just imagine that each one of these cards 
represents uh, one of the 27 truth statements. You've got basically two of clubs through the ace of clubs, that's 13. And then two of hearts through the ace of hearts, that's another 13. And then the 27th will be the ace of spades. Each of these cards represents one of those truth statements from Genesis. Now, let's just imagine you take those truth statements and you just shuffle them up a little bit. Just uh, shuffle away. And if you are uh, sheltering in place, here's something you can do for the next, I don't know, till you're dead. Um, here's, here's what you do. Just shuffle, shuffle, shuffle. Put them on the table, you know, randomly shuffle them around. Okay, now, what do you think the odds are uh, of you coming up here and then just taking one and then I'm going to take another and then I'm taking a, that's one out of ten octillion to get them all back perfectly in order, randomly, ace, uh, deuce through ace, deuce through ace, and then ace again. And you say, well, are you sure? You try this at home. Now, here's, here's what Dr. Salviander concluded. And again, she's an atheist. She's a scientist. She's an astrophysicist. I know it's only with black holes and quasars, but she's still smart. And she goes through all of this stuff. And it's like, there is a God. And when she came to the conclusion, there is a God, she says, I was so happy. I was filled with joy. And it wasn't just that there's a God, but here's the deal. There is a God who created all of this. And this God reveals himself to you. Wow. Okay, now here's my next question, because we're talking about being humble enough to listen and be slow to speak. But here's, here's my question. How humble do you have to be to let God speak to you? Not very. In fact, if you are quick to speak and slow to listen and you don't want to have, you don't want to hear from God, I would say that's extraordinarily arrogant, isn't it? James is saying, look, we're going to get to being doers of the word later. Next week, we will. But it does start with hearing. And if you don't recognize you need to be born again, indwelled by God and His Holy Spirit and His presence in your life, you don't recognize that you need to be humble before Him and you want to you talk more than you listen and you don't want to give the Word of God the time of day, there's your problem. Just start there if you want to be good. Now, that sounds kind of harsh, but here's the deal. Here's the good news. All you have to do in order to have God come into your life is to say, look, God, I know I've been on the wrong end of the deal. I've, I've sinned. And it's not just in what I've done. It's been my attitude. I was full of me. This is what the Bible calls repentance. You rethink things and you recognize, wow, um, I need a reorientation. We're going to give you a chance to do that in just a second. But one more thing I need, to, I need to point out before we get to next week, and that is, if you want to live the good life, you want to be the person you want to be that your wife or your husband wants you to be, other people want you to be, that God wants you to be, here's the deal. You must be born again. You've got to humble yourself before God. You need to be in the word of truth because God's power comes in your life, not just in a vague general way, but through the power of truth. And then finally, number four, you need to see that God is who you are really after. Now, sometimes we forget that. And when we forget that, we're fools 
but it doesn't change the reality. God is who you are really after. He is the only one that will satisfy. Let me put it to you like this. If I were to ask you, do you want the golden egg or do you want the goose that lays the golden egg? Everybody's going to say, I want a golden egg. Sure. I mean, that's two pounds of gold or thereabouts. Who doesn't want that? But I'll take the goose. If I ask you then, why do you want the goose? You would say, well, because I don't want one egg. I want an endless supply of eggs. Well, then you don't want the goose, do you? You, ju- you just want lots of eggs versus one egg, but the goose is just the middle duck or whatever, the means to an end. Here's the thing. Sometimes Christians will come to God thinking, well, you know, of course I want God because he gives all these good gifts. So you don't really want God. You just want more gifts. James does not allow that kind of thinking, and here's why. You go back to verse 17, and and I love the way he puts it. He's very precise in his language. He says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. Now, for starters, in Hebrew thought, the gift was always a reflection of the giver. The gift was never bigger than the giver. It was a reflection of the giver. But beyond that general understanding, you have here James saying, Look, he's... You think of all the heavenly lights, he's the father of them. He's the big, he's the big kahuna. He's the daddy of it all. Or put a little bit differently, he is the light. All these others are lights. He is the light. What do you mean? There's no shadow of turning in him. That's how it's put in the King James. There, there's no shadow. There's no change in him. It's like this. You know, depending on how you stand, there might be shadows. I don't know. These are decent lights. But no matter how God changes, no matter how he turns, no matter where he stands, there's never shadow. Do you know why? Because, because he is the light behind all light. He is the life behind all life. He is the, the beauty of all beauty. You can think of God like the sun. He, you, you look at the sun, there's no shadow. You look at a, a light bulb, it casts shadows, but it, you just see light. Now, the moon is wonderful. It gives light too, but the moon only gives light because it reflects the light of the sun. And James is implying this much. He gives the good gifts. This is true, but it's not about the gifts. It's about the father of the gifts because if you cut off the light, if you say no to the sun, you know what you're left with? You say, I'm choosing against the sun. I'm choosing for the moon. Well, if you cut off the sun, here's what you get. You get the dark side of the moon. Don't be foolish. God cannot and will not be treated like the goose that lays the golden egg. He's not the means. He is ultimately what your heart needs. Foolishly, we forget this, but it is foolish to forget it. I started with this Ernest Tubb song, you know, baby, it's so hard to be good. Make a promise a day to my baby. Break a promise a day somehow. She says I'm driving her crazy but I'm too overchanging now. And then later on in the song, he sings this. He says, I always had an eye for the ladies. Don't believe the, behave the way I should. But before we met, I had some time I can't forget. And baby, it's so hard to be good. And he's not singing to his horse. He's singing about infidelity. He's, he's not faithful. Now, it's just a song, but I can imagine if I was Ernest Tubbs wife, I don't think I'd like that very much. And it's, kind of funny because it's a country song but it's kind of sad because here's the deal when you love someone more than they love you back it hurts and frequently when you love someone more than they love you back and you're faithful in a way that they're not generally the person who loves more generally the one who's faithful 
is, at least for that time, the better person. And it's sad when the other person doesn't see what it is that they have. Now, we all fall short, but God does not. Because even when we are unfaithful, he is faithful. And he loves us with an infinite love. It never ends. It never ceases. In fact, here's the way God looks at you and me. It's right here in James, and it is beautiful. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. Now, I get emotional on this, and here's why. You know what the first fruits were? The first fruits were what the people of God gave to God as a gift. God is saying, when I look at you and what I did for you and given you rebirth, here's what you are to me. You're a gift that I'm giving myself. That's how I see you. You're a gift from me to me. And the first fruits were also essentially a promise, a foretaste of what was yet to come. I see you as a gift to me, but I also see you as a gift to the world, a foretaste of what is yet to come and a a good representation of who I am. That's how I see you. You are my priority. Now, if that's how God looks at you and that's how God looks at me, don't you think that since he is the light and the life and the beauty that he ought to be at least in a high priority category? I mean, I think he ought to be the highest priority. And yet in our foolishness, even those of us who believe, would in those moments of weakness trade the sun for the dark side of the moon. And when we do it, God's still faithful. More next week as we talk about just not just looking at our faith, but looking appropriately at ourselves. And it's not all negative. There's a lot of wonderful things there when you see yourself through God's eyes. But as we close here this morning, here's the call. It's real simple. If you have not yet accepted Christ as your Savior and Lord, the means whereby God's holy, holy, holy presence comes into your life that is not deserving. You need to do that. You need to be born from above. It's that simple. You ask, you receive what it is that he has to give, and he gives it gladly. But if you are born again and you have forgotten just how good God is, well, there's a call for repentance there too. Let's not take him for granted. This is the God of the universe who in all humility comes and gives us birth, gives us his presence in our lives and reveals and reveals and reveals because he wants desperately to be known. Do you not know this is what you need? We are so privileged to be his people. Let's bow for a word of prayer. If anyone here or or watching would just say, you know, I I do, I want to be good and I I don't want to just use God to a means to an end, but I just know I need God in my life. That is what I need. That's who I need. You could just simply say this prayer right where you are. God, I know that I've sinned. I've fallen short. It's not just that I've done wrong. My attitude, my mindset has been wrong and I need a change of thinking. And so God, I'm just expressing to you, I know I've sinned. I know I've fallen short. It's not just that I've done wrong. I've been wrong. But I also know that you are a God that loves on top of loves, on top of loves. And, and it's not because of anything that I deserve. You just, you're just, you are the good, good God. And I need, I need a God like you in my life. So God, I, I turn from my sin and my selfishness. And I turn 
to Christ as my Savior and Lord. God, thank you for sending your Son who died on the cross, rose again from the dead, so that I could have you in my life, the forgiveness of sins and you come rushing in. Thank you, God, for saving me. And if you're here this morning and say, I already know Jesus, you just might say this, God, I know I've I kind of taken you for granted. And that's why I've been not doing good because I just forgot how good you are and how good it is to have a good God like you speaking a good word to someone like me. So forgive me, God, for not humbling myself before you. Forgive me for doing all the talking and not enough listening. God, forgive me for putting you on the back burner. Forgive me for not humbly receiving the word of truth. And God, I know that I'm going to fall short, but I don't want it to be because I just blow you off. God, forgive me. Thank you for forgiving me. In Christ's name, amen.